A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. Come into the reading room, all you lovers of language and literature. This is the place for those of us who believe that reading is essential as we seek to rise above the ordinary. And the reading room contains a host of extraordinary people, leading lights of the written word. Authors, literary critics, columnists and ideas people will tantalize your minds with their wordplay while discussing the ideas and worldviews that form our wonderful literary milieu. Come step into a world of magic, the place of undiscovered treasures, a room of reading. Hi, I'm Melanie Walker and welcome into the Reading Room. Now, it's a place where we're going to discuss words, we're going to discuss books, we're going to discuss writers, everything about the English language and far past that as well. And we do have a lot of those here in South Africa. I'm sure that many of you have your favorite people that you follow that are clever with the way that they speak. And one of my favorite scribes is Gus Silver. And I never, ever miss reading what you write, Gus. It is just an absolute pleasure to have somebody who is so erudite when it comes to the use of words. Now, what I'd like to know, because they say you're a well-known journalist and wordsmith, what do you describe yourself as and which do you prefer? Well, my background and my training was in journalism. Going back before that, obviously, I was just kind of crazy about English and about writing in particular. It was the one subject at school that actually kept me in school. My father was an English teacher, so a lot of my background comes from there as well. But I very much think of myself as a journalist because essentially what writers do, and this is what journalists are trained to do, is kind of find the meaning amidst the chaos of everyday life. A journalist's skill, or at least a skill a journalist needs to aspire to, is to be able to sift through masses and masses of data and information and find some meaning in it. That is why we need journalists, and that's why we need writers. So I think of myself as a journalist because what I do is journal, and because hopefully I've still got that somewhere in the back of my mind, that particular element of training. So I'm happy to call myself a journalist. Sometimes you'd look at it and think, journalism. Mm, my goodness, it's really gone down in so many ways. I mean, I don't think I get through social media at least once a day without seeing somebody going oh my goodness, why don't they use subs anymore? I mean, the state of journalism in South Africa has really gone down. Do you find that? Do you find that frustrating? Especially when people are saying journalists are like this and journalists are like that. I've become very open-minded about what journalism is. That's why I kind of specifically say that it's journaling. Mm. So journalism is a profession and a craft and however else one wants to define it. But it's also an open field that should be open to everybody. So I kind of have moved away from the idea that journalists are a kind of sacred kind of creed in society whose job is to bring us the news and to inform our opinions. I think that anyone who's able to journal well, anyone who's able to do the job of finding meaning in chaos and finding the signal in the noise is actually doing the job of a journalist. So when people say the standard of journalism has gone down, on the one hand, they are right because of the commercial realities of, mm -hmm. of the media. On the other hand, the standard of journalism has actually broadened and improved in many ways because pretty much anyone who wants to journal can be a journalist. And once you kind of break down the barriers, you're inviting people who may have the most fascinating ideas, most fascinating insights and ways of looking at the world, you're telling them to journal. So to me, journalism is still very vibrant and exciting. It's not what it used to be, 
but it's certainly kind of defining a new field for itself. Well, I think the difference would probably be as a journaler, you're writing stories, but as the, what they call the journalists these days are basically just news reporters. They're just taking the news and putting it out there and there's nothing really behind it. Yeah. Well, one definite trend that's happening, and specifically in South African media, is that journalists are kind of being obliged to move into other fields of media. So journalists now have to be adept at recording video, they have to be adept at taking photographs, and they have to be adept at using social media. And sometimes you kind of get the feeling that a journalist's job has changed to become a kind of scribe of other people's thoughts. Mm. So you find a huge amount of writing in South African media is based on what so-and-so said on Twitter today. And the word, the Twitter sphere or tweeps, or to be used the more informal term, are saying such and such a thing. But that kind of, to me, it kind of demeans the journalist role. Journalist role is not simply to point you to what other people are saying. It's to find meaning in that. But then there's also the whole thing about on lazy journalists, because all they're doing is going onto Twitter and taking facts from there without actually even fact-checking a lot of the time and just putting stuff out there as gospel. That's right. There's all sorts of dangers attached to that. The primary one being that Twitter is a medium of the moment. Whereas journalism is a medium that needs to kind of put some thought into whether or not things are accurate. People who tweet don't have that to worry about at all. And when journalism starts straying into that field, it starts getting dangerous. Also, anyone who uses social media, anyone who uses Twitter, will find very little of value in newspaper reports on what people said on Twitter, because it's already old news to them. So journalists today, I think, have to add a huge amount of value to what's going on on social media. They need to go beyond that. They either need to find a way of interpreting it, or they need to kind of be more multimedia in their thinking than simply writing what's already appeared on other platforms. It's difficult to find anything of actual value on Twitter these days as well. I mean, it really has become a bit of a cesspit, quite honestly. That's right. Well, you know, I think one thing about Twitter, and I'm a big fan of Twitter, and Twitter is categorized as a a kind of toxic swamp. Mm. At the same time, there's another aspect of Twitter, and that is that there's this term in journalism, widely used in journalism schools, the public sphere. So Twitter is the new public sphere. It's what in the 17th century people used to gather in coffee shops and and talk about what was going on around them. So Twitter is essentially this huge big coffee shop. The big difference is that in coffee shops typically people don't throw cups of coffee at each other. They generally have more <laughs> civilized conversations. But the toxic part of Twitter I find quite fascinating. I don't delve into it much. I don't kind of personally kind of swim in that swamp. But I do find fascinating the way people react so quickly and the way tempers flare. It's partly because of the concentrated nature of the medium. But some of the best people I've encountered in the last, since Twitter launched in 2007, people I've never even met, but people whose opinions I value, people whose wit I value, and people whose kind of humanity I value a lot Mm. are people I've met on Twitter. So to me, Twitter is these people. And it's all the rest of them. But it's a huge big mix and it's really a mirror of the society we live in. We're at a toxic society in many ways, but we're also a very good society with a lot of humanity at the core. I suppose you can just, you know, decide I don't like what they're saying and, and just unfollow them, which is a great thing. I mean, there are certain people over the years that have followed, like Grey Sky Thinking, who's yes. a brilliant tweeter, Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes. Grey seems to have a, a thing <laughs> through all the stuff, but like really clever. And yeah. I loved it when it was 140 characters and it was yeah. so encapsulated. It's like writing a story in 55 words. That's right. Yeah. Now, Twitter is, aside from everything else, Twitter is a writer's, It's I wouldn't say best friend maybe, but it's a writer's kind of challenge. It's what can you say of meaning and value in now 280 
characters. Mm. So in that way, from a pure writer's point of view, Twitter is very valuable because a big part of what writing is all about is concentrating your thoughts and trying not to ramble. Twitter kind of forces you to think in short bites. And paradoxically, because short, sharp bites are associated with anger as well, yep. Twitter therefore becomes a platform for people to yell at each other. But, you know, it's a very manageable platform. I prefer muting. If, if, I, if there's someone who's kind of, for some other reason, irritating, I'd far rather just mute them than block them. Muting is like, you know, in the Superman comics, you send someone off to the forbidden zone or whatever it's called. Oh, come on. No, it's rugby, okay? You did, you're off to the sin bin for 10 minutes, okay? He's red carded. Exactly. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Except yeah. they don't know that you've done it, so that's the only yeah. problem. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, however, there's something nice about that. It's kind of passive aggressive, you know? Mm. It's, I'm going to put you on mute, but if I feel like inviting you into my space again, I will do so. Whereas blocking someone is quite final. It's like, you know, I don't want to have anything more to do with you. But people are human. People kind of go through phases. And maybe you change your mind about someone. Well, you don't really need to block somebody on Twitter. You just stop following them. But exactly. I, I mean, yeah. I, I read your stuff on Facebook, okay? And I love what you have on Facebook. You are the wordsmith. You are the person who puts out these amazing ideas about the most mellifluous writing, if I can call it that. Not just about when you're writing about music, which I know you enjoy very much, but it, it translates better on Facebook. But on Facebook, you can just go and Ferguson somebody if there's a racist who's suddenly following you. No, 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 I'm Fergusoning you. That's what you've done. Or you yeah. can mute them like, see less or hear less from yes. so-and-so for 30 days, which That's is great. Right. Yeah, <laughs> It can be quite peaceful because some people become rather vociferous. Which do you prefer? I mean, do you like writing short? Or, I mean, are you the person who likes to expand upon all the ideas? Yeah. Well, for a long time, I didn't actively use my Facebook account at all. I had a perception that Facebook was just a place where you went to catch up with what your school friends were doing since you left school and uh, a, a platform to kind of share family photos, and that wasn't of huge interest to me. Mm -hmm. But then I discovered that there's something about Facebook as a an unmoderated platform for longer-form stories and longer-form kind of mini essays, really. Yeah. And, and what I like about Facebook, which is very different to kind of journalism, in its traditional sense, is it's it's kind of it's instant and it's unmediated. So I can think of something and I can post it on Facebook. I can remove that post. I can edit that post, which is something you can't do on Twitter. The feedback is is instantaneous. The connection it's very different. You know, in in journalism, you're really lucky if somebody actually kind of even first of all, if they read your story, yep. you know, it's great. But you don't often know that on Facebook. You know, you very quickly kind of discover who's communicating with you and what they think, which is a, a great tool for a writer to have. But it's also a case of, you know, people are spending more time, especially now in lockdown, online. Yeah. Couldn't get newspapers for a while. And of course, all the magazines closing down now, which is yes. putting a lot of journalists and snappers out of work. Yeah. Um, newspapers feeling the strain intensely because people, I, I don't know, I don't buy new newspapers at all anymore because they changed the crossword puzzles. <laughs> and I wrote to them and said, if you change the crossword puzzle, if you don't bring back WH and everyone's, I'm not buying the slimes anymore. And they wouldn't change them, so I don't buy the newspaper. <laughs> um, but I do miss the writing that I got there, but I'm finding the people on Facebook and, and you're being obviously yeah. one of them. So we are more exposed to your writing these days. Instead of it being buried somewhere in pages and pages and pages of newspaper, you know, I think this is the thing about social media. You know, on the one hand, it's a huge existential threat to so-called traditional media. On the other hand, it's actually very liberating. And the one great liberating aspect of it is that suddenly all the mediating—you know—the word media means mediated. Mm. <laughs> 
editor, multiple editors, audiences are kind of uh, mediate your work. On social media, you don't have that mediation. It's just you. Yeah. And this idea of the individual becoming a publisher as well as a writer and a distributor too. You choose what channel you want to distribute your mm. thoughts on is very powerful and liberating. And certainly for me, it's been like revolutionary. So on the one hand, it's something that has kind of thrown the traditional media sphere into absolute chaos. On the other hand, it's opened up a new world. And the media that thrive, the New York Times being the one that comes straight to mind, are media that use this new world in interesting and innovative ways while still retaining the idea of a daily published newspaper in print in your hands. So these two worlds can coexist. They definitely can. But do you think that traditional media still has a place, say, in, not internationally, I'm talking about South African society? And we're taking the point that the majority of the people don't really have that much access to the new media. Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, first of all, Twitter used to be a platform for a very small niche of people working in the so-called creative industries. Mm. Now, thanks to the proliferation of smartphones as a kind of uh, commonplace technology, the rise of Twitter, and, and South Africa has got one of the most active Twitter communities in the world. So to a large extent, social media has democratized thought and opinion in South Africa in ways that never happened before. Mm. So I think the idea that social media are kind of elite platforms was once true, it's definitely no longer true. If you look at a typical day in the life of Twitter, you'll see that it very much mirrors the reality of South African society. And the digitalization of our society is still a bit of an ideal. We still have what's called a digital divide. Mm. So it's still just a portion of our society that actively uses social media. But Twitter is hugely influential as a, a forum for ideas, as a starter of ideas, and as a mirror of parliament, effectively. It's very much like a people's parliament. Now, it's the same could be said like we're doing a podcast. Okay. Radio is still so relevant in certain parts of South Africa. Podcasting is on the rise. We know that. But to get the message out to people, we still have to use traditional media. So are you feeling now that you would still like to see your name in print to be able to get out to a wider audience? Or is it a case of, well, if you want to read me, you must either follow me on Facebook so you can see what I've put or buy my book? Well, for me, the medium is not as important as the, the message. message. Yeah. So <laughs> when I when I started in journalism, it was a it was a huge kick, a huge thrill to see my byline in the paper. And when mm. I started in journalism in the old school days, you know, a byline was not something you were automatically granted. It was actually a kind of privilege and was a sign that the editor was pleased with your work. So you weren't I, a staff writer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I worked on the star and for a long time I was staff reporter or staff writer, which is a very demoralizing, you know, it's like a generic. And then suddenly you <laughs> see your byline in the paper and it really means something but I think we now live in a far more kind of elastic age of of media and I don't care whether I pick up a book made of paper or whether I pick up a newspaper or whether it's something online or whether it's a podcast as long as the idea and the message is is good I think that you know you have a kind of multilateral multidisciplinary view of what media are and then it doesn't matter. I know people still say, and you hear this a lot, yes, but I love books because you can feel them in your hands and they have a good smell about them. <laughs> Look, yeah. I, I love books. Yeah. And I'm just, I can't wait for, you know, to get back into libraries. And, yeah. and that's a whole other thing about what libraries are doing to booksellers, etc. We're not going to yes. get into that because it could be a whole thing. But I, I don't have a Kindle. Yeah. I read books. 
I, it's, yeah. it's a, I like that tactile kind of thing about it. You know, I think when you read, you kind of use all your senses. Mm. There comes a point in, in your reading, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, where the medium actually becomes completely irrelevant and the story and the ideas take over. So if you're reading a good book and you're reading it on your phone or your iPad or in your hand, it shouldn't actually matter. Mm. Um, you kind of suspend your, your kind of tactile feeling of the medium and you get transported into another world. I think this is the magical power of reading, is that it's a vehicle that transports you through your imagination into other worlds. And at that point, it actually doesn't matter what vehicle that you're riding in. Your mind takes over. So I still love books and the tactility of books. You know, the idea that you can pick up a book and flip through it and start at the end or in the middle, that I still love. It's harder to do that on an ebook. Mm. It doesn't take me long at all to forget what medium I'm reading on, the story and the idea take over completely. I just have a bit of a antipathy towards um, screens <laughs> because my eyes don't like yeah. them. So I'm like, you know, oh no, I'd rather have something which I'm just got, it's easier to read. Yeah. Otherwise it feels like this particular medium is cold. You know, the hot and cold yes. difference where like television is a, is a cold medium. Yeah, no, absolutely. Whereas reading books are a warm medium. Yeah. Look, I think one thing that's also important to note is that um, old technologies don't disappear. They just find new audiences. Mm. So, you know, vinyl records. Yeah, they're vinyl, back. Yeah, they, they're yeah, enjoying yeah. a massive renaissance because of younger people, millennials in particular, finding greater warmth in music and, of course, because of the trend of, of DJing. So vinyl records should, by all reasoning, be completely extinct because of the power of streaming media. But an entire new generation is discovering them. And the data also show that younger audiences prefer tactile physical books. There have been studies done where, you know, you look at who's reading what in a subway car. Mm. And younger people are almost always the people who are reading physical books. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Especially, yeah. I mean, when it comes to books, um, and, and we are going to get onto yours now, because you just recently brought out a new one. Now, I first found out about you and your writing, obviously through newspapers, but then who is really who in Southern Africa, which you put together with uh, Hilary Prendini Toffoli? Right. Yes. What year was that about? 1990, around about It then? was, uh, I think it was 1992 or so. So yeah. it was just before the kind of dawn of the so-called New South Africa. It was still kind of that in-between period. It was such a great book, though. I mean, uh, you know, all the people that are in it, and including me, <laughs> yay. Um, and, and basically going through, it, it was a nice little microcosm of South African history. And it's been so nice going on to, do you remember when Yeovil, do you remember Hillbrow, and going through those stories again. And I think people are joining heritage foundations and places like that to find out more about the history of places and what things were like. Because to go forward, sometimes you have to return to history, don't yeah, you? Absolutely. Yeah, no, so that was a little bit of a fun book, a sort of unauthorized irrelevant uh, autobiography of various South Africans and the form was very much kind of short, shorter pieces, mm. modular. So in essence, I suppose looking back, it was like a little bit of what of what Twitter does. You know, Twitter's fascinated by celebrity and my personality. It was the same thing for me and Hillary who were working on style in those days. Fantastic we, magazine <laughs> that was. Oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah, so we were chronicling in longer form what people were doing and the idea was to kind of take a little bit of a potted look at who South Africans were across the spectrum of our society. But it was very much tongue-in-cheek. So that was the first book I was introduced to you by. How many books have you actually published? I don't actually know in my head because quite a few of the books I've done over the years have been commissioned books. I would have so counted all of them. <laughs> I did 17, 27. <laughs> 
there have been quite a few, but but some of them have been commissioned books and mm. others have been kind of books through mainstream publishers. Yeah, once again, it's the kind of, you know, I don't keep count of how many words I've written in print versus words in scripts and so on. So it all just, after a while, when you write for a living, it all just kind of becomes one huge big mass of words and the media themselves tend to kind of blur into one another. Mm. So I know it sounds odd. I would have to go and count. I don't actually know. But yeah, it's definitely been in double figures, put it that way. It's a lot of writing. Yeah. yeah. It, it is. And writing is a solitary act. Uh, it's quite an exhausting act. In my household, I often have to, I often kind of, when I hear someone coming up the corridor to my study, I often feel I need to do something to make it look like I'm working. Because to the outside observer, writing consists very much of staring at a screen uh, and then bashing away and then kind of unbashing. And then they come in and they annoy you and you lose your train of thought (laughs) and you just have the perfect sentence in your brain and it's gone. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So writing is, it's a kind of odd way to make a living because there are very few tangibles to it. Mm. It's based on it's very largely kind of in your head and then you translate that into actual words on a screen so it's not a kind of normal way to make a living and I often think you know for instance when a when a plumber comes to my house to fix the plumbing I often think that would be a cool job to have where you know exactly what spanner to use and your job is defined by how long it takes to fix something and then off you go and you get paid your huge amount <laughs> whereas writing can take it can actually take ages just to decide should I use a semicolon here or should I use three dots or should I just not use a punctuation mark you know there's this what makes it difficult is that it's a series of decisions that you have to make mm. and you're kind of second guessing those decisions all the time yourself However, there comes a point where it's sort of hopefully it flows. As with any creative form, you just reach a point where it's kind of working. And I do find I'm, I'm very, very critical of the, of the writing that I do. But I find if I write something on social media, particularly Facebook, it works much quicker because of the lack of mediation. Mm. So it's just me. And I it's can bash those words out and I can send them out. Whereas doing work for mediated purposes is you're always aware of an audience and an editor. Now, whose writing do you admire? So when I started out as a journalist, the journalist that I most kind of aspired to write like was Tom Wolfe. I think there was an entire generation of journalists who grew up wanting to write like Tom Wolfe in what was known as the new journalism style. Mm. And he was just like kind of the writer to aspire to be like. Over the years, I've kind of moved away from kind of being, modeling myself, I suppose, on the writings of journalists and far more into the way essayists write. Mm. So I can pick up a book by George Orwell and marvel at the way he puts words together in his essays and how he puts thoughts together. Of course, he was a journalist originally, but a lot of the work that I read, I, almost, I read almost exclusively nonfiction, actually, and I read a lot of work by essayists who write shorter-form pieces and they somehow kind of capture the tenor of the times through what they're writing. There's a lot of fiction writers I also admire. William Styron is one of my favorites, the guy who wrote Sophie's Choice. But I read, I read a huge amount. I read a very eclectic amount of work. Often I'll be reading several. This is one advantage of reading e-books. You can read several books at the same time and just go back and forth between them mm. with great ease. But yeah, so Tom Wolfe and journalists in general, Vanity Fair journalists and Hunter Thompson sort of, but not as much as Tom Wolfe. But the idea that as a journalist you could write something novelistic and cinematic was what appealed to me very much. So do you have any actual books on your bedstand at the moment? (laughs) (laughs) We always want to know who's got what next to their beds. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I don't really have any physical books at all 
on my bedstand. I certainly have physical books in the house. My house is absolutely full of books. Yeah. But in terms of what I'm reading, it's almost always what I've recently kind of found online and what I'm reading on my phone. I read a lot of so-called kind of popular science, the kind of books that Malcolm Gladwell writes. I like those because they're easy to dip into and they're often very, very topical. So a lot of the books I read are kind of books of what's happening at the moment. And in fact, you were saying earlier on language and words, a lot of the books that I read are actually books about language and words and how our society revolves around them. I find that topic fascinating. Mm, Bill Bryson, when he brings yes. those books out to me, he's yeah. just absolutely brilliant. Now, getting on to e-books again, of course, and it's not actually an e-book that you've brought out, is it? Electric Graffiti? Yeah, it does have an e-book form, but yeah. it's a it's It's a, it's a hardcover. Yeah. Yay. No, yeah. I'll yeah. add it to my collection. <laughs> um, now, Electric Graffiti, that came about from your musings on Facebook, on the wall. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, hence the name, which is, you know, Graffiti on a Facebook wall. So the publisher, Bookstorm, had the idea of uh, putting together a compilation of pieces, which kind of took me a bit by surprise because I use Facebook simply as a as a platform for all sorts of random ramblings and expressions. I didn't think of it um, as something that could be compiled in the book form. But I'm very grateful to the publisher for, for doing that. It's nice to have a physical record. Who's the publisher? Uh, Bookstorm. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant because yeah. I, I think every single thing I've ever read of yours, I'm always like, oh, thank you for putting this <laughs> up. It's so fantastic. So for somebody to actually say, right, let's take it all, put it into a book and take it out there for people who might have not been following you on Facebook. It's a great way of getting the older school people to understand what's going on in the world at the same time. That's right, yeah. So Facebook to me is, it's obviously a social network and uh, it's got various aspects to it that I don't really use. But the one part of it that I do like is it's, it's, it's a kind of news platform for me, but it's a social platform primarily. What I like about it is that there aren't actually any rules on what you can post on Facebook. A fleeting observation, a long essay, it's entirely up to whoever's posting. And I like the unpredictable nature of it. Mm. You know, you can have a political rant on Facebook. You can write about your weekend birding in the Kruger. Anything goes. Other media, mainstream traditional media, have got very strict kind of expectations of what people want to read. Mm. Social media don't have that at all. And that kind of freedom for a writer is fantastic. So you're not put into a box. Yes. You can scribble on that wall to your heart's content. Which South African journalists that are on Facebook, do you follow, if any? I follow a lot. First of all, I belong to a whole bunch of journalism groups where we kind of discuss these things and we discuss the decline of our profession and we discuss what's exciting about it and so on. There, there are a couple of names. Um, I mean, at the moment, I'm, I'm following Chris Murdek because he's just so funny. I mean, I know he was with BMW. but Yeah, Chris is funny. What One thing I, I love about Facebook is kind of encountering people who you – You'd almost kind of forgotten they existed because yeah. you knew them 10, 20, 30 years ago. And there they're writing really interesting things. There's, there's Chris Murray, who, who now oh, uh, lives in the yeah. Karoo with yeah. his wife, Julianne. He, he writes great stuff about, about his little world. Mm. And it's great to have a connection to that that otherwise I wouldn't have because it would, his print platform, Country Life, has kind of disappeared. Yeah. Um, but the fact that, he, that I'm able to read his stuff on Facebook in the ether is is fantastic. What about the big bad boys from the days of journalism, the David Bullocks and uh, Ben Travato? Yeah, well, well, well <laughs> I mean, Bullock is very, very like busy on Twitter. That's right. Yeah, I don't think he uses Facebook much. Well, Travato is a, a unique character in that he's one of the few people who's built a 
kind of satirical persona for himself and he manages to make very pertinent points and he's able to get away with being completely politically incorrect, which is a challenge for all of us these days, but he's able to say things that people aren't able to say easily with their real names. He's a pseudonym, but he, I, I love that kind of satirical look at our society. Yeah. Okay, so when it comes back, I'm going back to the book again because I'm like, I really want to get my hands on this and just have that wonderful collection of, of things that you've written about. What is it that you enjoy writing about the most? I enjoy writing, well, this is one reason why I like Facebook as well, because, you know, the kind of things that one can write on Facebook will very rarely go past an editor uh, of, a, of a magazine, let's say, or, or a newspaper. Um, random incidents, random observations, little facts about life that kind of occur to you as you're going for a walk with your dog, and then you think to yourself, this this might make an interesting post. And I, I do this quite often, I, you know, I might kind of into my into the recorder on my phone, I might jot down a few thoughts, and then mm. when I'm back home, I'll finesse those. But there are certain things I, I like writing about more than others. One one is anything to do with popular culture, whether it's music or art or books. And then I'm really keen on kind of popular science. So I love anything to do with space launches and what Elon Musk is doing and so on. Did you jump up and go and watch the space station going over at night when it came past South Africa? <laughs> I missed it, unfortunately. <laughs> However, I do have an app that tells me when it'll happen again, so I'll make sure not Let to Let me miss know, it. because I also missed it out the last time. <laughs> I was like about half an hour later. Oh dear, I forgot about that yeah. one. I mean, you write about quite serious stuff. I mean, there's a, a mobinomics part of you yes. with that. Your little, what was the little book of lists about? Because yeah. we love was, lists. Yeah. That was also a kind of pre-social media era, but you know we call them listicles in in the media. Listicles are are ten things you never knew about, or fifteen things you need to know. I love those in the newspaper. Yeah. yeah. So this was before the kind of digital era, and it's now become an incredibly kind of popular way of communicating big ideas. Mm. And it's become actually quite shallow to the point that I'd rather kind of read my information in slightly longer form than at 10 points or 15 points. So listicles are generally meant for fun. Mm. And that was just a little fun book in the same way. Okay, and then Lessons in Radical Innovation. So this guy who now lives in the UK called Wolfgang Grulke, and he used to work for IBM, and he became what's called a a futurist, uh, looking 10 years, 15 years ahead, and kind of often with great accuracy mm. into the way the world was changing. And that's an example, as I was saying earlier, of a kind of commissioned collaborative book. So I took his thoughts and ideas and translated them into kind of more popular writing. So which books have actually been your book, just you, on yeah. your own? Okay, so there have been quite a few. The first book I did that was entirely my own uh, was a book called It Takes Two to Toye Toye. And the idea there... I have that. I still have that. It's in, I'm in my South African collection. Okay. So that was in 1992. So yeah. two, two years before we moved into, into a fully democratic society. And there was very much a feeling in that, episode, that era from 1990 to 1994 that we were suddenly tourists in our own society. That what we thought was familiar and every day was certainly becoming very strange and unusual. So the idea was a kind of a user's guide, a survival guide to this new South Africa. Well, maybe you should be doing another one of those right now, seeing as <laughs> the way that everything's changed so hectically yeah. recently. Goodness That's me. Right. But of course it was entirely satirical. And yeah. uh, quite a few of the books I've done on my own uh, have been satirical in nature. But satire has changed hugely. Mm. And what I wrote then in the early 1990s, I don't think I'd be able to get away with a lot of that these days, partly because social media have actually, in a very large sense, I wouldn't say they've completely destroyed satire, but they definitely have affected satire because 
there's the layer of irony that is required for you to understand that something is satirical is kind of removed on social media platforms. Mm. You know, that's why very often fights start because people don't make it clear that, hey, I'm only joking or I'm being sarcastic. Well, or well we get that from Zapiro. And I mean, yes. he, he managed to encapsulate everything so well with yeah. his drawings. So, I mean, I think yeah. that a lot of the time you're trying to find a writer who can do that. Yeah, but even so, Zapiro has, over the course of his career, had a lot of problems with people yeah. either misunderstanding or reacting badly to his satire. So satire, I think, is a hugely important part of society, and it's another one of my big interests. But it's it's getting harder to kind of do because a lot of the time you, you don't want to explain that something is satire mm. that, and make that clear. You never want to say this is a satirical piece. You want it to be understood for the fact that it is satirical. Well, the fact that you have to explain what satire is yeah. to somebody, first of all, is really not... Yeah, <laughs> not as what soon you as you start doing. explaining it, it loses its loses satirical everything. edge. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's still a huge interest of mine. A lot of what I, I read online and a lot of what I read in books is in some way or other satirical in nature. Okay, so now you writing for anybody at the moment? I'm doing a huge amount of writing. My writing tends to be in all sorts of, of other fields. I do a lot of script writing. I do a lot of writing work. I call it my, my main job as a as a writer, and I'm kept very busy by it. Is essentially what a writer does, which is to take big ideas and realms and realms of information and translate them for people to understand whether Encapsulate it's online. Encapsulate as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we live in an odd time of, of history where more and more writers are required to explain things and more and more traditional vehicles for writers are disappearing by the day. Mm. So writing is still very important in society. It's not in any way endangered, and writers are still very important in getting ideas across, but the platforms and the media are changing hugely. Now, you're script writing for what? For TV? For I mean, obviously not talking about making a script for yeah. a feature movie. Yeah. So um, over the years, I, I have been involved with, uh, on, on several uh, movie projects. Uh, the movie industry at the moment is pretty much in limbo, uh, but there have been periods where it's been very busy. And I've, I've worked on, for instance, a lot of projects with Leon Schuster over the years. So my, my ventures into script writing in the movie field have tended to be in the humor field. Mm-hmm. A couple of horror movies as well. But, you know, once you decide... And a song? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, once you decide that you're a writer, or once it gets decided for you that you write for a living you have to kind of broaden your boundaries and you have to take on absolutely anything. Mm. So if someone says, uh, I need a three-minute song for a corporate event, can you write the lyrics? You don't want to say, nah, uh, I can't do that. You say, yeah, sure, of course I can do it. I can write anything. (laughs) What do you want me to write about? And I'll write about it. Absolutely, yeah. Exactly. So the freedom that comes with kind of being a writer for hire also gives you a responsibility to broaden your horizons and not just write one kind of thing. What have you enjoyed writing the absolute most? Which, what piece of writing are you most proud of? I think of the books that I've done over the years. I mean, the ones that I kind of look at now and I feel I enjoyed doing those were very much the satirical books, partly because they're kind of fixed in place at a certain point in society and hopefully they still have some relevance because although times change, the nature of politics doesn't change. Mm. The nature of our incredibly crazy and fraught society doesn't change. And there's something about looking at things through a satirical lens that gives you a huge degree of, of freedom. But I also like writing about technology and writing about business. And mm. uh, you know, a couple of books that I've done through Gibbs, the Gordon Institute of Business Science, I did two books for them on social entrepreneurs. And I found that very interesting because 
a huge amount of, of what we read in our society is like extremely kind of negative and actually quite kind of depressing. Mm. And these were stories of people who were doing amazing work in the social sphere. In other words, entrepreneurs, but their primary impulse and their primary kind of goal is to build a better society in some way, very idealistic. Mm. And I love kind of finding those stories. They Very often they're under the radar. They're not famous people. But stories of people who are doing interesting things in society, those kind of things I love. I just love the journalism part of me is like in, interviewing people, finding out their stories, finessing their words uh, into uh, accessible writing. And it's just something about it that kind of, it's, I suppose in, in a way it's kind of feel-good writing. So it's, it's different to satire. Satire is not meant to make you feel good. It's meant to challenge you. and, in, and possibly, That little needling yeah, underneath exactly. the skin. Yeah. Put, a, put a needle in, possibly offend you. Yeah. When you write for a living, when it's your job, you tend to have multiple personalities and you move from one to the other. And you can be very serious one in one piece of writing and in the other you can be totally kind of uh, frivolous, mm. no seriousness intended at all. So I like the versatility of it. I love the fact that you've got this encapsulation of all these little microcosms of South African society. And, you know, I'm just hoping that these kind of books, your writings, will become part of the greater, and I'm going to say Afrikaner, not Afrikaner, yeah. but Afrikaner. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I love collecting Africana, yeah. but in writing as well and art. Yeah. So hopefully it'll get there yeah. and it will stay there and it'll be there for generations to come who will sit there and That's look true. and think, you know, maybe everything wasn't that bad yeah. back in South Africa. There were so many good things coming out and we just have to maybe change the way we look at it. Yes, it's, it's all about perspective. I think the role of writers in society is, first of all, to chronicle what's happening so we can mm. go back and, and see uh, this was what was happening at this particular point, but also to give us some perspective. So writers need to be able to look beyond the present moment and to extract some meaning from it. And that's what I kind of enjoy about it. It's not simply a case of putting words on paper. It's also a case of trying to find meaning. That's very important. It is indeed. Now, if people want to get hold of your, your latest offering, where would they get electric graffiti from? <laughs> well, it's available, you know, wherever books are sold. If people are bold enough to venture into bookshops. <laughs> <laughs> it has yeah. been a bit scary, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. But of course, as with everything else these days, um, but online. on the online platforms as well. Well, I really, as I said, look forward to it. What is it? Electric graffiti musings on a Facebook wall. Yeah, correct. So the idea that the wall is a wall that you put graffiti on. I like that idea. It took me quite a while to figure out what a Facebook wall yeah, means. Yeah. But I now realize that it's a place where you write and then something else comes to kind of put your writing out the way. It's very ephemeral. And the chapters, I would imagine, are quite short. So for those of you who have the attention spans of fleas, it'll be quite easy reading for you. Gus, Absolutely. thank you so much. It's um, always a pleasure. It's, I mean, I haven't seen you for quite a while, but it's lovely to catch up with you again. I, I look forward with great anticipation to your next offerings as well. And I will keep on scouring Facebook to keep on <laughs> reading your stories. And hopefully one day you'll be able to bring some of these innovators and new people that you found and interview them on your own podcast. Well, that'd be great. That. I'd love to do that. Not just the written word, the spoken word as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.